Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast from the Mary Foundation. Today's episode features Mark Lozano, who is currently working on a book entitled The Christian Case Against the Stock Market. A convert from evangelistic atheism, Mark runs the website ChristCenteredCapital.com and has spent the past several years giving investment advice based on biblical principles. And he believes with strong moral conviction that investment in the stock market constitutes a clear moral evil. We discuss Mark's conversion, how he arrived at this controversial position, and why he thinks the stock market is a moral evil, along with his ideas for Christian alternatives. Disclaimer, the Mary Foundation and its representatives are not financial advisors, and nothing in this episode is to be construed as financial advice. Please consult a trusted financial and spiritual advisor before making any financial decisions. We strongly emphasize that we are not experts in this area. The Catholic Church has not condemned investment in the stock market, and Catholic teaching generally permits investment, interest, loans, and other such financial interactions like those discussed in this episode. The views expressed in this episode do not represent those of the Mary Foundation. It is rather a conversation exploring a fascinating idea with an interesting person. Due to the constraints of the medium, there are many critical facets of this topic, including objections, that could not be explored, though we did our best to cover anything that came to mind. We leave it to the listener to proceed in prudence according to their own judgment. And lastly, I hope you find this conversation interesting. If you want to learn more about Catholicism or are looking for materials to evangelize family, friends, and fellow parishioners, please visit the Mary Foundation at catholiccity.com to order our Catholic scapulars, books, booklets, medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's Catholic City Message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, catholiccity.com. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Doing good. How are you doing? Thanks for coming in today. I'm doing well. We're here with me, your host, Anthony Mancini, with the Mary Foundation and CatholicInAtAllGroups.org, and Mark Lozano. So why don't, how'd you end up at this place where you're writing this book and you're promoting this idea. How'd you get here? Oh, man. <laughs> We're going to need a while. Uh, how did I get here? Uh, going all the way back. Raised in a secular household. Uh, I guess I'm on fire and writing a book and everything because I'm a convert and got a fire that started me when I was about 25. But backing up as to why... I was why I had to be a convert and I wasn't a cradle Catholic. I was sacramentalized when I was a kid, but uh, my parents didn't take it too seriously. My family didn't take it too seriously. Um, and therefore, I did not take it too seriously. So once I was sacramentalized at the age of 12, I we never went back. So from the age of 12 to 22-ish, I never stepped foot anywhere near a church unless my one high school basketball coach made me. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, my parents never gave too much pushback because, um, my one sister, my one sibling that I have, uh, we're only two in our family, my older sister, three years older, she was born with a brain tumor on her optic nerve. And that caused her to go blind when she was four years old. She went through chemo, radiation, more brain surgeries than I can count. And, uh, my parents who were, you know, good people all in all, 
uh, for the most part and didn't drink smoke do drugs or anything like that and they're like why did this happen to our kid and the easy scapegoat there is the almighty so they blamed god or at least my mom did for the most part and uh that's why when i gave a bunch of pushback when i was 12 13 ish years old i didn't get a whole lot of no this is the right thing to do this is what we should do this is what we have to do it was just like all right you're fighting me then we don't have to go and then nobody went for over a decade fast forward to high school i am now like i'm pretty obsessive reader always been an obsessive reader not that i understand a lot comprehend a lot but i like to read and i got into that new atheist flavor of reading um i was really into philosophy but i was very much opposed for very superficial reasons to any kind of religion mostly because i wanted to pursue the pleasures of the flesh uh wanted to be a hedonist in any way shape or form i could be so in high school i got like really good grades i was captain of the basketball team and i was doing all that stuff for status and praise and it led me to that coupled with more of my hedonistic atheistic philosophy mentality i um just wanted to get as much praise as much uh affirmation from people as possible i wanted to be the best at whatever i tried whatever i did and um that led me to be a bit more that coupled with the voracious reading coupled with the obsessive personality it kind of all led me to um a more militant atheistic position if i was ever pressed on it i wouldn't have like wanted to engage people i wasn't evangelistic in my atheism or anything but if i was ever pressed on it by you know i can think of a couple people whether it be my parents or my um high school basketball coach who i still have a good relationship with now um i just i would have said i'm agnostic or atheist and then fast forward a little bit more i'm in college and in college i wasn't good enough to play basketball for the major d1s like i wanted to so i said if i can't play for the major d1s i'm not playing at all so i took a academic scholarship for this very small uh school in lakeland florida called florida southern college and i missed basketball so much that and part of my scholarship i had to be um i had to do a work study program and one of the options available to me was to work for either the men or the women's basketball team and i was like hey at least i'd be around basketball i couldn't suffer to be around the boys because i was recruited for like some of the rival schools and stuff it would just be like too hard to like in my mind i was like it'd be too hard to like watch them play and then like not play myself so i ended up working for the girls team as like a quote-unquote student coach and i met my then my future wife um taylor who is a cradle catholic and we you know the whole gamut in college fell in love and everything and you know did everything together blah blah, blah. but um we fought constantly <laughs> about uh religion and morals and values and it was really weird like we were like we got along so well we did everything together everyone knew that like you know um if one couple is going to make it, we're going to make it, you know, like we, but then we fought constantly behind closed doors on this like subject of morals, values, religion, all that good stuff. And, uh, 
carried us. I ended up playing for the uh, men's team because I just had the bug too bad. I, did, I wanted to play so bad. And then we ended up um, going through grad school together and still arguing <laughs> about it. Um, so we both got like undergraduate, graduate degrees. So we're, we're, we started dating towards the sophomore, the beginning of our sophomore year of college and or the middle of our sophomore year. So we're going on like five, six years of like arguing about this, like morals and values and everything, but still sticking together and not leaving each other's side. And I was like, all right, one of us has got to give and it's not going to be me. I'm way too prideful, way too egotistical for that. So. I said, I will be evangelistic in my atheist and my atheism, and I'm going to deconvert her or convert her to our side. So again, this is where the voracious reading comes back into play. And I read everything I could get my hands on from, you know, the atheistic view. And then it wasn't, I was like, well, I'm going to combat the my opponent here, which was a terrible way to think about your future wife. <laughs> if I'm going to combat my opponent here, I am going to need to know her aside in and out. And she, she was, uh, um, she was like pretty knowledgeable. Like she was, um, very devout and everything, but she didn't know all the answers to all the questions kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know? But I was like, I'm going to, find out those answers and then show them how silly they are. And, you know, then we'll can move on with our lives. So everything, I read everything from like the new atheists to, um, everything like Graham Oppie's written to going back to Nietzsche and Freud and then going through, um, you know, just ge generic philosophy and Socrates and Plato. And then I read everything. I read like the Summa Theologia, read the Catechism, read the Bible, read, and mind you, I'm reading all this, but I'm understanding like maybe 2% of it. Like mm -hmm. you can, you can read the words off a page and it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> so I'm reading the books, but like very little uh, sinking in, but to shorten the story a little bit, I just get to this point where I want to buy into the, atheistic arguments, but I can't, I just, I, I can't do it, but I'm finding myself, um, in conversations with friends or whatever, favoring the theistic arguments, favoring the theistic philosophy. And I'm like, I'm not a Christian or anything. I'm not even a theist at this point, but I'm like, man, I, in conversations, like I've had conversations with certain people and they'd be like, wait, aren't you like on our side? Why are you are? And I'm like, well, yeah, but we just can't have bad arguments to, for, um, atheism. We can't, you know, straw men people, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But I'm realizing at this point, I'm like, intellectually, if I'm being honest with myself and I'm kind of getting my emotions out of it, intellectually, I'm a Christian. And that made me kind of mad. <laughs> that made me like, uh, I don't want to be, uh, for many, many reasons, many, many selfish reasons. But, um, I ended up uh, essentially becoming an in, like being converted to an intellectual Christian, and then it took uh, quite a few more years ish before I was a full fledged believer. Yeah, I don't know if you want to stop me anywhere in there, or if I can keep rambling. No, this is all part of the journey. So, when did when did you get into the financial realm at this? point of the story like was this during your conversion before after so uh yeah bringing me back all right the so i'm intellectually christian post 
graduate school. And right around when Taylor and I get married, we get married in the church. And I'm still wrestling with the emotional, spiritual Mm -hmm. conversion part of it. And I'm working odds and ends jobs in like as financial as a financial analyst for like healthcare, local government, all that kind of stuff. I originally thought I was going to be like a Wall Street guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I got degrees in international economics and business administration and graduate undergrad, but I got a, like a little taste of that kind of world, and I was like, "That's not for me." And not because of any moral reason at this point. It was just because like ah, the rat race seems like a lot of work. I don't want to do that. I'm kind of lazy. I don't want to work seventy hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, what does a financial advisor actually do? I feel like that's one of those terms that people throw around. <laughs> and then uh, unless you're in the industry, like what's the actual day-to-day of that kind of job? Well, it depends because some financial advisors are a secret covert insurance salesman. You know, they're going to try to sell you like they might bundle oh, your 401k, but they're actually going to try to sell you um, a life insurance policy. Yeah. And I that's like a, a financial advisor, quote he, unquote. He worked in life insurance. And I'm like, wait, why are you talking about stocks? In this, in this insurance for my life? Maybe this is a good summary for it. Somebody in, in my past, uh, he knew he was going to be a financial advisor at age like 12. And the reason why, what, what convinced him was his grandpa, I think, somebody in his family um, was a financial advisor or he knew somebody. And he, as a kid, asked them what they do. And they, he told them, you know, like the pitch – and then his follow-up question was, so people give me money to make them more money, but even if they don't get more money, I still get money? <laughs> and he it's said, right. yeah, he said, I want to be that. And then became one, became a successful one. But I wanted to bring back to your um, conversion story. I can really resonate with that because the the age range, the age ranges from, you know, um, birth to 12, um, uh, were sacrament- I was sacramentalized as well. And then once I stopped going to um, Catholic grade school, went into high school, um, I fell away myself, you know, mm-hmm. not even practicing. And it wasn't until age 22 that I came back to the faith. And it was because of an important person in my life too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's relationships are crazy. Definitely different um, ways that person influenced us to come back to the faith, but yeah, it's really about re- yeah. all about relationships and circumstances. Like I don't mean to be uh, derogatory towards my parents; they were great people, are great people, they're amazing people, but they weren't catechized well. You know, they didn't have answers to a twelve-year-old's questions, and then they're just like they have jobs and they're trying to raise two kids and they're trying to make ends meet. They were in well, outrageous medical debt because of my sister. They had to, we actually moved from New York to Florida because they just couldn't cut it in New York after all the medical debt. And it's just like, I don't know. My dad doesn't have time to <laughs> read the catechism or at least not perceived to have that time to answer uh, my questions of like, why do we trust the Bible when in my, you know, sixth grade class, we can't do a game of telephone that gets past three people that we can trust. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh and it goes into relationships because then i go through you know the 10 years 10 plus years of not even stepping foot anywhere near a church much less in it and receiving any kind of sacrament but then you know 
God put in my life, my future wife, and then she doesn't even do the job of like convincing me or anything. I'm going to set out and convince her wrong. And I'm going to, which is just a terrible approach again, to take to anybody that you love. Like I'm going to destroy your worldview. <laughs> just an awful way to go about it. Um, and, uh, but then that spur of the moment of like, cause I, I make this argument all the time. You have like really, really intelligent people that have crazy different opposing views. Like I'm, I'm big into podcasts. So you can have like all the podcasters, you know, like you got your Ben Shapiro, Orthodox Jew, you got your Jordan Peterson, secular conservative, something other, you got like your Bishop Barron, who's incredibly intelligent Catholic Bishop. Then you got your Sam Harris, who's another, you know, high IQ guy. You put all four of those guys in the room and like, they don't agree on anything from uh from a real religious standpoint and it's like and all of them are articulate all of them are articulate so like you can listen to anyone and if you want to buy what they're selling it's easy to buy it because they're all very articulate people and they can tell you the sky is purple and they're probably all going to be somewhat convincing and i thought about this and going through when i was doing all the reading and everything i'm like why can i not believe the person i want to believe I wanted to believe the Sam Harris in that four person scenario, but I could not do it. And the last person I wanted to believe was like the Bishop Baron because I just had a bad taste in my mouth from Catholicism and Christianity in general. And the one thing I didn't want to be true was the thing that my wife said was true. I'm like, all right, if some kind of religion's true, like let it not be this thing. So I, after, you know, just out of a pride like, I don't want her to be right if I'm wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Back to the – the reason I ask about what you actually did as a financial advisor is because my understanding is that that informed being in that work – not advisor, um, analyst. That informed a lot of what you ha you know now about how the financial industry works. Yeah, definitely. So I bounced around to a bunch of different financial analyst jobs because I didn't want to be a broker. And I like – I despised all of them. I couldn't be behind a computer. I don't have the um, – patience or just the uh, attention span, I guess. And some of the work is just boring to me. <laughs> but then I was like, I put in for a job for like, I put in like for my 17 year old self dream job, even though I didn't have a degree for it. And I put in for a uh, game logger for the NBA. Um, I was working where me and my wife were living in Northeast Pennsylvania at the time. And for anyone who's familiar with the NBA National Basketball Association, they have their headquarters in Secaucus, New Jersey and Manhattan. And so it's like an hour and 15 minute commute for me from where I was living. And I was like, what the heck? I'm going to put in for a job at the NBA and see what happens. Well, lo and behold, I get a call back from um, the hiring manager and they're like, yeah, your resume does not fit whatsoever with this at all. Like, we're, but um, did you really work for IMG Academies? And IMG Academies is this preparatory school that, um, you know, they give like postgraduate years to athletes, you know, football, basketball, soccer, tennis, and they help them get into like D1 schools and everything. It's a really big thing down in Bradenton, Florida. It's uh their campus is crazy and they do produce a lot of like really high caliber athletes, you know, and I worked for them for two years as a skills trainer for basketball, um, in between like my grad school years and stuff. And the hiring manager called me in to give me an interview because she was really into football and 
working for the NBA and her like New Jersey football team that she coaches the cheerleading team for was going down to play IMG Academy's football team. And at the time, IMG Academy's football team was like brand new. It was the new sport they introduced because forever they were just like soccer, um, tennis, uh, basketball, baseball. And they had just now introduced football because they expanded their campus. And they get like all these – they're not like sanctioned by any kind of high school rules or anything because if you play IMG, you're going to get crushed by like 40 points because it's a bunch of people that are – you know didn't get good SAT scores that are going to try to go to like Division One or something. And, um, and so she called me in, never asked me a single question about the MBA, about my resume, nothing. And just asked me all about IMG academies. And then I left and they gave me a job just because I went down. So like, I was completely unqualified for the job, but they gave me a job as a game logger. And the way the MBA works, uh, just for those who are interested, like a lot of times, They'll hire in like 20 to 25 new people every year because it's the NBA. Like they get applications out the wazoo. Mm -hmm. um, everyone wants to work for like a professional sports organization. Hence me, I applied. And um, they kind of put you through the ring of fire that first year. Because um, you got to like, like for me back when I was doing it, this is like 2015-ish. They uh, assign you a West Coast team, an East Coast team. And then you got to be there every single time those teams play, whether it's, you know, Portland Trailblazers at three in the morning or whatever it is. And you're watching them play and you're logging all of the stats that come in. And, you know, God forbid you miss uh, a triple-double that someone was supposed to get or whatever. It's kind of like a, a little bit of a high-pressure situation. So, and, you're, so you're flying back and forth? No, no, no. Okay, you do, you monitor every game from Secaucus, New Jersey. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. You monitor every game from Secaucus, New Jersey. Just want to make that clear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you do that for a year, and by the end of the year, the 25-ish people that come into the job, there's like eight of them left because it just burns you out. And like it's – and then from there, they ask you like, all right, what department – you made it. What department do you want to work in? And we'll see if there's an opening. And then my resume, they put me in the business operations department, and then I spent – almost six years working in business operations for the NBA. So that was, and then during that entire time to go back to Xavier's question of like the world of finance. So like in the business operations department, I'm basically managing budgets for the NBA and a little bit of people, but mostly budgets. And um, my two sources of income for now, my growing family, cause I got like two little girls, I think a little boy on the way. And, you know, buying a house, all that stuff, dog, the whole nine. And uh, the two ways I make money for my family, because my wife's essentially a stay-at-home mom, is uh, the NBA paycheck and uh, doing personal investing for myself on the market. And I did fairly well in both. Okay, so the, the NBA job wasn't, like, directly financial sector. It was more just, like, business management. Yeah, it was definitely more business management. I deal most of my work in the financial sector was in um, education, you know, in my undergrad and graduate work. And then I uh, taught a few classes and the financial analysts for like the hospitals and stuff like that. But in the NBA, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like working on Wall Street or anything like that. Gotcha. So how did you go from your one of your main streams of income is investing? personally mm -hmm. to where you are now where you think investing in the stock market is moral evil how'd that journey happen so one of the reasons um sorry the stories are probably seeming like they're all over the place but um one of the reasons i did not want to be a christian 
is because of that obsessive nature I alluded to earlier. Because when I, I'm like a dog with a bone. When I get something, I'm going to go full throttle, 100%. And I was like, I always, was always afraid that um, back when I was intellectual Christian, the reason I didn't want to really commit spiritually, emotionally was because if I do, I know that I have I had met those like on fire people, quote unquote. And I'm like, I don't want to be one of those people. And like, you know, I'm going to like be trying to go to daily mass every day. I'm going to be trying to, you know, homeschool my kids. I'm going to be... Uh, um, doing all these different things. I'm going to, uh, you know, not watch football on Sundays because I'm going to be too concerned with X, Y, and Z, the Lord's Day, like all these different, I knew how, how like obsessive I can be. And I was very afraid of that. And I was doing a lot of things of like, you know, pursuing the flesh. I'll, that's, I'll leave it that's at that. That's kind of ironic because it sounds like what you just said is I didn't want to be a Christian because I knew I would be a really good Christian. And I yeah. <laughs> put in the work. <laughs> Yeah, it's, 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 it is. It's like um, I've always been that way, whether I was playing basketball or schoolwork or whatever. It was just like if you, I was given – because I, I when I was only an intellectual Christian, I, I would think of it as like a task, as like a just a to-do list to get done. And I would have been like so obsessive with getting the to-do list done of like praying the rosary every day or whatever it is. And um, not that that's the right approach for a Christian to take, but it definitely would have been my approach and – also just giving up all the things that I was doing at the time, you know, I would have been wanting, I knew if I like committed, I would have been wanting to fast and like, I don't want to fast. I, if I committed, I would have been having to properly love my wife. And I'm like, that takes a lot of work. And, <laughs> you know, just all the, all these things. Um, so when I was making towards the end of my MBA career, when I was making money off the market, making money um, via the MBA paycheck, I, started to slowly become i wouldn't say slowly it was actually more of a rush but i finally throughout this entire time of all the voracious reading and voracious reading and everything like i never prayed i didn't pray i i don't think i ever prayed once you know through the first like five years of this journey of like reading everything and stuff like that i i mean like i would attend mass with my wife and stuff but like i wasn't participating in any real way and then finally one day, because it, it, it tears you up in knots. If you're intellectually committed one way and emotionally committed the other way, like internally, you're, it's like, you know, a, a jigsaw puzzle in there. And one day I was like, all right, I can't deal with it anymore. I'm going to actually pray. I'm going to just be, and I got on my knees. I'm like, God, Lord, your will be done, not mine. I'm giving it up. I'm giving it up. I'm giving it up. Lord, your will be done, not mine. And it really was like a rush. And when that rush came, like, I was obnoxiously happy, <laughs> you know, as we, you know, you see the new converts and stuff. Like, I was obnoxiously happy. I was definitely on fire. I was kind of doing all the things that I was afraid I was going to do <laughs> at the time. Um, but the one thing that was my biggest fear is, like, I knew the moral convictions were going to take root. I knew the moral convictions were going to overpower me and I wouldn't be able to lie to myself because I wanted to lie to myself all the way at the beginning. I wanted to believe the Harris, Dawkins, Hitchens, Dennett thing, but I couldn't believe the new atheist guys for whatever reason that was beyond my comprehension. Um, so when I made that prayer and the moral convictions took root, I started really looking at my life in a way of like, where am I glorifying God? And then where am I serving the enemy? Because you're really only doing one of the two things. There's never really a middle ground. Yeah, you get spit out. Yeah. So 
I and I realized, man, the, especially the ways I was making money, and the more I kept thinking about it, and the more I kept contemplating on it, praying on it, I was like, the ways I was making money were not morally sound whatsoever. And um, at the time when I was working at the NBA too, they're like, it's it's. I quit the NBA like right at the height of the pandemic, even though like they gave me a really cushy work from home job at the time. I quit the NBA uh, because we started going through like these eight hour long critical race theory training programs. We partnered with like, well, it's actually a really funny story. The, all the stuff is going on. I'm kind of having this moral dilemma evaluating my life kind of thing. And, um, I end up saying, going to my wife, I'm like, I think I got to put my two-week notice in at the league. And she's like, about time. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what do you mean? You really? And she's like, well, I knew you were going to quit eventually. Like, it, And I'm like, this is news to me. You, you could have told me. Like, and she's like, it had to come from you, you know. She's much wiser than I am in so many ways. But I was like, all right. So I put the two-week notice in. And my boss is like the one guy I have a really good relationship at the NBA. He's a great guy. And... um uh just had lunch with him a couple weeks ago but uh he knew why i was quitting like he kind of saw the writing on the wall and all that kind of stuff and he was kind of in tune to my personal life a little bit and uh he sends me an email the thursday before the friday which is my last day so the day before my last day sends me an email he's like hey uh we have an offer for you to like stay it's a little bit better benefits you know more money you know blah 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 but he's like, wait a couple minutes. And I'm like, before you respond to me. Cause, and I'm like, wait a couple minutes. And by this time, I'm like, I'm out. I'm, it doesn't matter. I'm out. But he doesn't know that. He thinks, you know, maybe like there's a, a chance or something. Mm -hmm. But he was, he was a wise guy too. And he goes, wait a couple minutes. So within a couple minutes, we get an email from the deputy commissioner of the NBA, Mark Tatum, officially announcing the partnership with the organization Athlete Ally. Athlete Ally is an organization that's sole purpose is to let transgender women, quote unquote, meaning biological boys, compete with in female sports at the middle school and high school levels. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> so he gave me the wink wink and I was like, all right, see ya, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Um, it was just funny. Like the day that I got the offer to stay is also like within minutes I got the, that email and I'm like, if I ever needed a sign, I guess that was it. I'm out. Um, yeah. So I, that's what I was always afraid of. I knew the moral convictions were going to take root. And then that, so I left the NBA just completely, um, kind of disgusted with them, even thinking back of like my years being working with the NBA and not realizing it at the time. Cause I wasn't, I guess my eyes hadn't been opened, but I was like, man, I worked for an idol making factory. Like that's what it was. I was at the all-star weekends, like behind the scenes and stuff. And it's like, it was an idol making factory and like professional sports. I'm sorry. They're not like sports companies or entertainment companies. That's what, that's what they are. And yeah, I just had so many uh, bad tastes in my mouth from my time at the NBA, like with the hindsight. Um, but then I was like, all right, well, I'm really good at this investing thing. So maybe that could be the way I, because I quit the NBA without a plan to provide for my family. <laughs> I'm very uh, impulsive. I don't recommend other people doing that. But I was like, I'm really good at this investing thing. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do the investing thing. And I was like, but I should look for like these. Um, I, I was familiar with these, this term BRIs 
uh, biblically responsible investing uh, firms popping up. So I was like, maybe I'll go work for them. Well, while I was deciding to go work for them, I listened to a podcast. It was a Pints with Aquinas podcast. It had uh, a now very good friend, Jacob Imam, on it. Jacob Imam was someone who did very, very well for himself in the market, much better than I did. Like, I did okay. He did very well. And he, like, um, now has a very negative opinion of the market for moral reasons. He's a, he's a convert to the Catholic faith and everything. And I listened to the podcast. I was like, all right, he's a bit extreme. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go that far, but I understand that like, all right, certain companies are bad, you know, Apple's using slave labor and mining different materials and supporting LGBTQ legislation and abortion and all that stuff. I'm like, we shouldn't be investing in those. All right. I get that. So I had this idea since to go work for one of these BRI firms and I have the podcast with Jacob Imam in the back of my head and his site and everything. But I'm like, when I go to look at these BRI firms and these Catholic, you know, mutual funds and stuff, I'm like, they're including like Microsoft. They're including the apples. They're including all of these things that are obviously illicit. But the thing is, you kind of have to include those. Cause if you go over the past 10 years, the best performing stocks and ETF stuff are because they're including the like the fang stocks like the 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 tech driven ones that are bolstering up the entire market and i'm like all right well i can do something better i can do an ethical evaluation of timely stocks meaning i can go to secular brokers a secular analyst secular uh recommenders right see what they're recommending and then i can put those things through an ethical analysis and then have recommendations based off that. So I let the market do the work of saying, these are the best financial assets to invest in at X, Y, and Z time. And then I put them through an ethical uh, evaluation to, uh, and then that way Christians, you know, can make very good decisions on where they want to invest. So I do that. I build a site. I spend a fortune on like marketing. I actually, it does pretty well the first couple weeks or first couple months and I'm like, this is great. And I was charging like really low fee, like $7 a month to get access to all of my like premium picks and everything. And it's, it's like doing pretty well. And I'm, I'm spending a lot on marketing, but it's still doing pretty well. But I have this bug in the back of my head about that podcast. So one day I reach out to Jacob and he's back to me like right away. Cause I kind of like linked my site in there and he was like, Oh, this is the best thing I've seen so far. It's still bad, but it's the best thing I've seen so far. And I'm like, all right, I'd love to like kind of debate you on it or pick your mind on it. And, you know, and was, so one day we like, uh, me and my wife were like taking a road trip to a wedding. We had like, at the time we got like three kids or whatever with us. She's pregnant with our fourth. And I'm like, it's the weddings in Ohio. So I'm like, all right, let's stop by, uh, Steubenville. And cause I've been conversing with like Jacob for a while now. So I stopped by and I'm like, all right, let's talk. You know, my wife takes the kids to the park and we literally talk for like, I don't know, an hour, two hours, something like that. And it wasn't really a debate. It was more just a conversation among friends. But if I was treating it like a debate, I would go, I will walk away like, wow, I lost that. Like I did not <laughs> come prepared and he made some amazing points. And I'm like, this is something I really got to think about. But then I go back home. I'm telling them, I'm talk constantly having talks with my wife. And my wife, again, much wiser than me. She's like... I, she doesn't know anything about finance, but you would explain kind of the basics of like the market where it's like, oh, you, you know, put money out and over time you get more money back. And she's like, but what are you doing to get the money? And I was like, well, you're investing, you're doing research. She's like, that sounds like cheating. <laughs> and I'm like, 
uh, it's not she. And the, again, I'm, these are my arguments of why not, but she always had this intuition that there's something off there and she just has a well-formed, you know, Christian conscience. And I'm thinking of like, my wife is still a stay-at-home mom. I got kid number four on the way. I quit the MBA. I used like my savings to market this business. And I'm like, what do I do if I scrap this whole thing? And I actually believe it was a very scary time. Cause I'm like, I'm again, I'm kind of like an intellectual convert at this point to, uh, Jacob Imam's way of thinking and how the stock market could be a real moral evil on society. But I'm like, it's the only way I'm making money for my family right now. This is like, I don't want to do anything to, to risk that, screw that up. But after a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time in contemplation, I'm just like, and a lot of just like mental struggle, like me trying to justify it, then trying to unjustify it, then justify it again, then unjustify it. I'm like, I literally, the, the story is my wife is, it's Halloween. My wife is about to give birth to our fourth kid, our second son. We're in the labor and delivery room. And I'm just like, pontificating about why the stock market could be moral or why it could be immoral. And she's such a beautiful wife. Cause she's just like, yeah, I'm okay. And she, she's about to go into labor, <laughs> but she's like little, literally listening to me talk about this. Um, she's definitely earning her, uh, or her sainthood there. But, um, I was kept talking about it. And then finally I was just like, I'm, I'm doing mental gymnastics now at this point to, uh, convince myself that it's morally, you know, justified. And we can get into those arguments if you want to, of like why it is not morally justified and why it is illicit. But I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta stop. I gotta stop. And so I made the site completely free. I kind of transferred it over to like, um, uh, moral philosophy site on well on how Christians should interact with wealth and I do like a week free weekly newsletter where I'm giving like world financial news from a Christian perspective and literally right when I make that transition almost within a week I think I make that transition and I'm contemplating like all right what do I got to do do I need to start applying for jobs what am I going to do a parish calls me out of the blue that I helped with an event like you know, to a year prior or something. And they're like, um, do you know of anybody who would want to be a financial manager for the parish? And I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, they need some little old lady to work, you know, they're 15 hours a week. Little do I know this, this, uh, parish owns like three church buildings, two schools, like two cemeteries, a football field, um, a mausoleum, and like, they're just one of the biggest ones in the Allentown diocese in terms of, you know, amount of land that they manage. And I go in and I'm like, yeah, they just know my background. And I, I did some like side work, you know, just, um, bookkeeping financial analysts and stuff like that for businesses. And they're like, do you know of anybody that would willing to take this on full time? And I'm like, uh, I'll look around and like, would you do it? And I'm like, no, no, like I, I can't commit something to like, you know, the 15, 20 hours a week. And like, oh, we kind of need you for 40 <laughs> as to be a business operations manager. And I'm like, well, that's kind of tempting. But I'm thinking, you know, it's like, you know, $18 an hour as a parish or whatever. And I'm like, I, I got, you know, four kids, stay home mom. I got to support. Well, like I said, I had that conversation within like a week of 
making C3 free and transitioning it and everything. And then um, just a couple days go by and they call me with an offer and they're like, Hey, we got this offer and you could also pick up this job. We, there's this, uh, the K through eight school, which my daughter was actually attending at the time, a preschool, a preschool and a K through eight all in one, uh, run by some lovely Dominican sisters. And they're like, they need a financial manager too. Do you think you'd be able to do both? (laughs) And I'm like, all right. Yeah. That's, and it kind of like, it's amazing. It's like five minutes from my house. It allows me to pick up my daughters from school every day and drop them off every day. And, uh, and they give me like complete free reign. They know the Christ center capital business and they let me, or I should know all the business, not a business doesn't make any money. It's like an apostolate, I guess. Uh, they let me do that for, you know, on the side and everything. And they know like when I travel and stuff for it and they're completely comfortable. And, um, when I made it, when I made C3 free, we even got people that were like, I've been struggling with this problem for a while. And then they were like, so happy that I like kind of laid it out in a way that made sense to them. And we got donations for that. And I'm like, so the second I kind of surrendered everything to God, he just came in and was like, all right, now this is the life I'm going to give you. And I was like, so worried for so long, tearing myself up in knots when I was like, man, I should have done this, <laughs> you know, a year ago when I first quit the NBA. But you know, it's a, it's a, it was a long process and God does not paint straight lines. So mm-hmm. he had yeah. to get me to the mental point where I was That's learning. That's for sure. So here's the big question. Why do you think the stock market is moral evil? All right. So the only way a Christian should receive compensation and we're, we're again, let's put uh, trust funds and, you know, gifts aside. We're not talking about that. That's a whole separate thing. The only way a Christian should receive compensation is if they labor to produce a good or service that promotes the common good. And think of the common good in a, a Catholic perspective of producing as many saints as possible through just means. So the only, I'll say it again, the only way a Christian should, pr- should receive compensation is if they labor to produce a good or service that promotes the common good, which is producing as many saints as possible through just means. And what, what, what would you define labor as? So labor is the actual work that you are doing um, in the assistance of or in the uh, actual production of that good or service. So labor is, I don't know if you can get more specific than that. So like, um, like um, obviously like digging a hole with a shovel, physical labor. Yeah. It's physical mental work. labor is wisdom labor. Yeah, like you have you have so many different kinds of labor. Like you have like the consulting labor, which is more like you know displaying, um, giving wisdom. You can have the the digging hole, the carpenter, the garbage man, more manual labor, and then so many things in between. And one thing about the stock market is is like, all right, why does the stock market not or secondary markets in general? Why do they not fit into this definition that I've given of true of uh, true labor and how Christians should receive compensation? It's not that researching what stock is better or what ETF is better is not work. Like I believe it is a type of work. It's that, is that work? Is it true labor? Is it producing a good or service that promotes the common good? And I would say it is a work, but it is not promoting the common good. And it may not even be providing an actual good or service. Okay. So stock market bad. Because does not 
is not labor that produces a good or service for the common good. So you've 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 covered that it it kind of sort of could be labor depending on how you look at it or depending on how involved you are. Like not somebody on Robinhood hitting three buttons, but like full time stockbroker research, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, full time analyst. But you say it may or may not be producing a good or service, and you do not believe it promotes the common good. Yes, but but so, how the investor relates to the stock market from their perspective like you're not the stock market itself and all the firms that participate in that on the other end but your question is for the people investing in the stock market what's considered labor for them right it's kind of holistic i think it's a system-wide question more so yeah but yeah, so whether, like, you, whether you're a hedge fund manager and or um you know blackrock vanguard state street or whether you're Anthony, Xavier, and Mark sitting in a room trying to figure out whether we should buy Tesla or Apple. It's the same concept of like you're supporting this system, which is the secondary market. That sole purpose is just growth and it is selling abstractions that is basically catapults inflation throughout society. And we can talk about all the different ills that like this stock market system has produced, but essentially, um, that's why I'm saying it doesn't promote the common good. If anything, it promotes the opposite of it. But saying it doesn't even produce a good good or service, I can kind of be wishy-washy on of whether it's a good or service. But like, because there's a lot of goods or services out there that don't promote the common good, obviously. You know, the abortion doctor and the pornography producer and the drug cartel and everything, they're all producing a good or service that's not for the common good. So it's really three three thing three criteria for the Christian to receive compensation. They got to be performing work, right? They got to um, be producing a good or service, and that good or service has to promote the common good. And I think the stock market absolutely fails on that third premise, you know, of producing a common good, and it may even fail on the producing of the good or service. But I do believe the case can be made that it is actual work. Okay, let's keep defining our terms. What what would you Let's just define the stock market. What is it? Uh, the stock market. Maybe even like a little history of it. All right. So the stock market, let's go history. That's always good for context. So um, the first like buying and selling of abstractions, I mean, that can go way back, but the, if you're talking speculation, but the first real buying and selling of abstractions in like the form of like a share is, you know, 1600s, East India Trading Company, that kind of thing. And then there's like a big lull and uh, where there's not a whole lot of advancement in the time. But we start, you know, getting into the 1800s and the 1900s where it's becoming a little bit more mainstream to invest in companies without having to work for them. You know, that's getting where we're starting. And then it Fast forward all the way to the 1970s, you have the pension plan dying out and the 401k being introduced in 1978. And then you have real, what we know of as, what we know today as like mainstream investing, not really starting until the 90s where like the retail investors getting involved and there's ETFs and there's, you know, a a lot more stocks available for the individual to purchase. So that's kind of like a brief history, like very, very brief history, but, um, I say all that to say like modern day investing, like this uh, speculative secondary market that everyone's somewhat entangled with is really only existed in its current form for like the last like 30 years. Can you kind of explain what you mean by speculative secondary market? 
Yeah, speculative or secondary market. So what we're doing when we buy, um, well, let's let's do this. So what is a stock, right? That's what's that's the abstraction I um, keep I keep referring to it as an abstraction that's being traded on on the secondary market. So the stock is um, company XYZ is producing uh, widgets and they want to grow and they're producing a bunch of widgets and they're doing really well and they're like hey let's ipo you know that initial public offering let's go to the stock market we can get make our com- company public we can get a bunch of funds for it and this is going to help us you know enter into new territories and um new markets and it's going to be great so the com- X- company xyz they ipo they sell their shares um exclusively to, I won't even say almost, they sell exclusively to like the big players, hedge fund managers, people with a lot of money in the bank, you know, um, and then those people, because you got to be an accredited investor to really be, participate in that IPO, um, essentially. And then, so now a bunch of people, right, whether it's 10 or 20 or 2,000 people buy these shares up of company XYZ. Company XYZ now gets a, a a lump sum of money. You know, I'm being very basic here, very simplified. Company XYZ gets a lump sum of money. Now they are able to grow, right? And they have to institute their board of directors and they're responsible to the shareholders to a degree. And now the shareholders, they have this um, this binary thing that exists in ones and zeros called a share, right? Sometimes they used to have like actual physical pieces of paper but that's kind of been done away with. So they have this share and what do they do with it? The whole point is to make the value of that share go up. Now there's a couple ways you make the value of the share go up. You can either um, influence the price of the share by uh, by like, you can really influence by anything because it's, it's really a mass manipulation. You can say, um, get a really rich person <laughs> to say that, oh, the widget's going to widget 3.0 that uh, company XYZ is about to produce is going to be amazing. And then that causes the price to go up. You could say that. Well, wouldn't people argue that it's the real world value of the company, so to speak, like Apple sells billions of phones? Yeah, but that argument kind of falls on deaf ears because if you ever compare the book value with the market value, it's ridiculous. Like you go to any company and just look at the book value and the market value and it's just, it's laughable. So like what really sets the value? What really sets the value is... value even like a good word? So here, can I, before you get into it more, um, should the, the amount of shares, should the amount of shares that is d- distributed to the general public or to these hedge funds initially, and then they sell it probably higher than the market or higher than they, the actual price of the share. I'm, I'm assuming that they're like the middleman that charges um, extra for the share for the final um, recipient of the share, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so like yeah. The, the company XYZ is only getting money off that initial IPO. Right. After that, they're pretty much disconnected from it. Right. I mean, they're connected to it by, via brand, you know, like it's their name mm-hmm. on the share. But um, now the shareholder is the hedge fund manager or institutional investor. Mm-hmm. And they're going to sell it to, you know, Anthony and Anthony's going to buy it. And Anthony, a lot of people in Anthony's position in today's world think, oh, they just gave money to company XYZ. They did not. They gave mm-hmm. money to the institutional investor. Right. And XYZ, it 
company XYZ has no idea really even if it's or they don't even really care if it's being sold. Hypothet- hypothetically, should the amount of shares, if you if you take 100% of the shares of a publicly traded company, should that equal the the um, actual value of the company, like he was saying, hypothetically? Um, well, I, I think, guess hypothetically, I think, but... I think that's what you're saying is not the case, right? Like, well, yeah, he's going to say how it's inflated and all that. But, yeah, what are you saying? Go ahead. Well, isn't that your point that, like... What we're told, more or less, maybe told isn't the right word, but just kind of the common man understanding is like, oh, this is the stock market cap of this company. That's what this company's worth. If we were to like liquidate the company and its IP, this would be the company. But you're saying the company's kind of disconnected at that point. They're really just a sticker on a digital piece of paper. Exactly. Right. So the book value should equal the amount of shares and their price hypothetically that's how it should yeah, work. and i mean there might yeah. be some some giveaway there because like you know the market value is more of like a projection a little bit and uh but the book value is what i'm talking about the book value would be the actual value of right. the company yeah. and this is probably getting almost too nuanced because i think the, yeah, the function looks- of the stock market in general like i don't really care that the book value or the market value is not equated to each other what i do care about is that we are saying we're taking our money saying hey give us tesla stock and we're taking tesla stock and the only reason we're doing that is so what at a later date we can sell it for more money what we're doing is we're using money to be get more money and i don't think it takes like uh you know somebody went to school for a long time to figure out that that's going to cause some societal ills okay so let, let's continue that so that's kind of what the stock market is in ridiculously simplified terms yeah you're using money to get more money all right without performing any labor in between Mm -hmm. so money in terms of later on selling the stock there's a there's a your stock will increase in value or um are you that's the hope right yeah that's what you're talking about um are you including dividends too is that a something that you're against yeah, I mean, well, if I'm, I'm, dividends, like, how are you defining it in, like, uh, are you defining dividends in, like, a business relationship or just how you're talking about in the stock market? Like, dividends cannot be moral if the thing that they're built off of, which is the stock market, is immoral, you okay. know? And I know I haven't, like, gone deep down into why it is immoral, but, like, that, just to answer that question about dividends. Sure. sure. Wouldn't dividends just be, like, the abstraction of, like, say there's a one owner company. It's one guy, he owns his company, and the company has a bank account, and once a year he pays himself because he's the owner he can decide so he like pays yeah. himself his paycheck out of the company account mm-hmm. that's kind of the same thing as a dividend just spread out over like a hundred thousand people yeah and the thing is is like in the in the big difference there from a stock market um someone who owns a stock is like they're not actually participating or making any kind of decisions with the company They're of any decisions that are actually worthwhile. There's no ownership. There's no actual work being done. It is just them propping up this machine that is exists for growth sake. Whereas like in your example, you have the one guy who probably put his blood, sweat and tears into this company and labored and hopefully it's producing something morally just. So to put it another way, it, seems like what you said so far is that with the stock market, there's the initial XYZ company and the people who own it, and then they sell it, but still run it to 
a group of people who give them a bunch of money. And like their reasoning is they want to grow. They want to invest in new buildings or hires. And so they do that. And then there's a board that will then tell them, hey, keep making money. Because over here in this imaginary place called the stock market, a bunch of people are moving around a bunch of fake pieces of paper that will go up or down sort of kind of based on what you guys do. Yeah, sort of kind of based. That's key key part there. Because now we can see that, you know, if Elon Musk tweets out, I'm switching from Android to Apple, what do you think is going to happen in the stock market? Like, it's nothing to do with the, you know, um, the utility of Android versus Apple. It's just like, oh, a famous guy said something on, you know, mm-hmm. social media. So the price goes up because it's it's people are making very much emotionally based decisions, not decisions based on any kind of utility. Like, we know that, you know, the... Yeah, I'll stop it there because I'll go too much into the weeds. Yeah, I think um, if I recall correctly, we kind of cut you, or at least I cut you off uh, when you were defining the secondary market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, like what's the primary market? The primary market is us buying and selling goods and certainly you're going to Walmart or your okay. grocery store and that's the primary market. Like I, I need to feed my family, so I'm going to buy bacon and eggs today. And um, yeah, so the secondary market is – the, pro- the the real problem I have with it is it does introduce – not the real – I have many, many problems. Well, <laughs> real real can, quick, what's the secondary market just for people listening? The secondary market is um, – let's see how the best way to simplify definition. Um, the secondary market is – I don't want to give a definition that's going to be too simplistic. I'd rather give example of. Okay, let's just do examples then. Just yeah. enough so that we can kind of like know what the thing we're talking about is, not necessarily a textbook perfect definition. Yeah, the secondary market, as I would put it, is the selling of the share of a company or um, the share of. Yeah, we'll say it, selling the share of a company to uh, the the general population. Okay, so it, it loosely then it's the stock market and all those fancy terms. One percent of people know what I mean, like ETFs and mm. hedge fund things. And it's just taking acronyms. shares of companies to, and selling and it to like all that stuff in the movie The Big Short, where they're like the banks did a bunch of hooky magic with numbers and lost everybody's money. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, it gets very, very complex of, it's selling the shares of a, it's derivatives, but it's selling the share of um, whether it be a company or if you want to get into all that stuff that you just mentioned, like if it's selling the share of a company, it's selling the share of a mortgage, it's selling the share of, it's taking something that in some way does represent the tangible, turning it into an abstraction and then selling it for profit. Yeah, okay. I think just generally what I'm hearing, the primary market deals with reality and then secondary market deals with speculation and just An abstraction abstraction and not reality. And that's the, that's the real problem I have because I feel like the further we get, um, again, one of the problems I have, the further we get from God's creation, probably the more ill that it's going to happen in society. And we, and we can see this already, like, you know, you're going from 
um, uh, a metallics-based currency to like our government-backed fiat currency that is really kind of based on like it was originally supposed to be kind of based on oil, I guess. And then you're going from um, this to, you know, you got Sam Altman out there with WorldCoin and you got uh, the big Bitcoin pushers and digital currencies. And the more you dive into the abstraction, the more manipulation that the powers that be are going to have and the less control the individual is going to have. And I think that's a demeaning thing to the human person on an individual level. You're robbing them of some sort of dignity as you move closer towards the abstract and further away from the tangible. Okay, so so far we've kind of been in more or less the philosophical realm, terms, things, it morally wrong because of definitions and relations. But like, what if someone's like, I don't get any of that, Mark? Can you like, why is the stock market bad? It's just that just sounds like numbers and stuff. Are there any like, are there other reasons you think it's bad other than just sort of oh, yeah. philosophical grounding? Yeah. So, um, I mean, recapping of like, yeah, I, I do believe it is wrong to receive compensation without doing um, just labor that's producing a good or service that promotes the common good. And that's not said anywhere, you know, in like scripture. I mean, some people may argue it actually is said in scripture, but you kind of have to like parse it out kind of thing. But I believe any good morally formed Christian conscious will be able to come to that decision. And I don't think they'll see anything wrong with it because they, they really never have problems with that whole line of thought it's just whether or not the stock market fits into it or not that's what they have more of a problem with no one's ever going to be like yeah you're working to produce pornography and that's a a, a service and it, but no one's going to say oh that's promoting <laughs> that's promoting the common good and no christian with a good form conscience is going to say that it's just whether or not the stock market fits into those fits those meets those premises or does it not meet those premises so you, there can be a lot of disagreement there um and the, that gets into what you just asked, Xavier, like is what are the, the, the kind of, I guess, tangible ways of like, why am I against the stock market? Why I don't think it produces the common good. And one is, is the, the concept of reaping where you have not sown. So if you are going to uh, buy a bunch of stock, right? You're an individual retail investor and you buy a bunch of Tesla stock and then you forget about it and you sit on it for 10 years and then you sell it for a profit. You've done no real labor and you've used money to beget more money. And that is a very simplified definition of inflation. <laughs> like you've produced inflation and you've hurt your brother because of it. You've hurt your neighbor because of it. Would you say produced is the right word or more of just like you've tapped into inflation? You've helped facilitate it. I'll say that. Yeah, you definitely, because I think the market as a whole uh, is one of the biggest producers ever. And now inflation is a, uh, a natural part of like an economic world. And because if, you know, if we're having more people, have more babies, you're going to need more food, you're going to need more shelter. And then like, you know, the prices of house and housing and food goes up and all right, that's a natural part of inflation. But when you're using it, when you're causing inflation to demand a non-necessity, that's where a problem comes okay, in. Okay, so you would say that... By participating in the system of this money game where you try to make more money with currently existing money, which is kind of the definition of inflation, by participating in that game, you're just you're a little little drop in the pond, but you're putting pressure toward more of the game, which is inflation. Yeah, you're incentivizing the market to keep on growing for growth's sake. 
and that's going to cause the inflation. Okay. And it's mm-hmm. and that that's a real key point. Like you're incentivizing the market to grow for growth's sake. Now this leads to a bunch of other ills as well, both economic and uh, moral. And we can talk about how growing for growth's sake. Like this is why we live in a global economy. And a global economy is something that is going to isolate the individual. So if you have a global economy, that means, you know, the we know this whole spiel of like the guy who's able to sit in his basement and he can order his groceries off uh, Walmart.com and have them delivered and order his, you know, whatever else he needs from Amazon. And he can have a computer job sitting behind a desk and he never has to interact with anybody. And so a global society has produced um, an isolated individual, which, again, promoting the common good is why we should do anything and that's obviously not promoting the common good so by investing in this market and causing this growth for growth sake mentality and inflation you are producing this global uh economy which promotes isolated individuals that's like number one going on to number two you have um you're promoting abstract dominant economics abstract dominant economics raise the price of actual tangibles but don't give you more purchasing power so I'm promoting because I'm I'm using again I'm using money to buy the Tesla stock in order to get more money back. So I'm demanding an abstraction of ones and zeros, you know, binary code here, to get more money back. I'm not using my and by doing that now more money's and in, put into the economy, and that raises the price of actual tangibles that we need, like lumber for housing. Okay, so where where does the extra money, quote unquote, come from? So you're just you know John Q investor you. Buy a Tesla stock for arbitrary ten dollars. Yeah. So think about like the a few years later, you get twenty bucks. You quote unquote didn't make that twenty dollars. Where did it come from? So this is what the this is kind of what the Federal Reserve does, right? They 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 monitor the market, they monitor the economy, and they see where demand is. Like you know, when when Elon Musk comes out with his Tesla, or you know, the Apple iPhone fifteen comes out, they realize that you know there's going to be more demand for a particular thing and that influences how much money they are going to print. And now, of course, a lot of other things influence the money, how much, how much money they're going okay, to print. Okay. So in other words, just to wrap it up, the Federal Reserve essentially just makes more money. Yeah. The so Federal Reserve you, just- You, John Q. Investor, by participating in this system, have put a little bit of demand for more money and mm-hmm. overall the whole system that and like, pressures and the Federal Reserve. What I'm saying is, gotcha. is like you can demand a, a necessity. You can demand your bacon, eggs, house- and, you know, transportation or whatever. And that's, you know, yeah, there's going to be inflation with it. And because the Federal Reserve sees that, oh, demand's rising, you know, we need to put more money into the market, blah, 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 because more goods and services are being produced. But when you buy the stock, the ETF, you're not demanding anything of necessity. You're demanding an abstraction and it's raising the price of the actual necessity. So by making your $10 off your Tesla stock purchase, you've limited the purchasing power of your neighbor. And you're like, why don't they just participate in the market as well? And it's like, okay, they can. One, you're going to get beat out. Retail investors are notoriously bad at investing because they're going to get beat out by the hedge funds and the institutional investors that are better at manipulating the market because it is a manipulation. And also, you're still raising the price of the necessity. <laughs> if both of you make the $10, like and you might have increased your purchasing power, but the the bigger players, the Black Rocks and the State Streets and stuff, they've increased their person purchasing power exponentially greater and their increase of purchasing power trumps your increase of your $10. And now and that you could, housing you could, prices. This is a little bit silly, but you could take it to an extreme and say, everybody clicks on that get rich quick YouTube ad and every single person decides they want to make money via the stock market. Mm. No one is doing anything. 
no one's actually doing anything. Like this is why in where I live, I'm, I'm very close. I'm Northeast Pennsylvania. And so I'm close to New York, New Jersey. You can go be a carpenter or an electrician in North Jersey and New York City and you're going to make six figures a year because it's supply and demand. It's like no one's actually doing the tangible necessity labor right now. Um, what are what are some other reasons then? So we have the the global the global uh, economy. We have the abstract dominant economics, and then we have that that reaping where you have not sown because like compensation when you really think about it shouldn't come easy. Like we're meant to toil, and when we have things handed to us, we all know this. Like uh, I mean, I, I have four kids. I know Xavier getting married. Probably gonna have kids soon. Like we don't ever want to give the two or three year old everything they want because they're going to become a spoiled brat. And that goes the same for adults. You don't ever want to give the adult like very easy way to provide for themselves. Not that it needs to be, everyone needs to do backbreaking, you know, labor or anything like that. But if we are saying, Oh yeah, just take your money, put it here and then make more money, you know, at a later date. And you're not, um, kind of, uh, incentivizing them to produce, a real good or service that's going to promote that common good, like they're going to become entitled, they're going to become greedy, they're going to become slothful. You're promoting these vices by by promoting a culture of reaping where you have not sown. So, and I think those vices brings you to step number four. Like we all know vice is not going to be a good thing. Those vices lead, so all three of those things, the, the global economy, the abstract dominant economics, the producing of the vices via reaping where you have not sown, now you're producing uh, family decay. All of those things are producing family decay. Um, the isolated individual from the global economy, the abstract dominant economics are raising the prices. Now people are afraid to have more kids. People are afraid to get married. People are afraid to actually buy their own land because they can't afford it. And you're you're having the the increase in vice because if you have if you increase greed and sloth, you're going to increase the, all the other vices as well, or all the other seven deadly sins. And this is all attributing to family decay. Now in our society, obviously there's many things that attribute to family decay. We can talk about social media use and um, all that kind of stuff. But like, this is a big factor that no one really talks about. You know, this is a really, really big factor. And I think it has um, kind of underpinnings into, you know, abortion culture and underpinnings into the, the social media stuff and like hookup culture and stuff. It, so the, the promotion of vices through reaping where you have not sown, it kind of leads to point number four of that family decay and the, the family is the best means to produce the saints which is going back to my original points of like doing something to promote the common good and now you're defeating the family unit you're decaying the family unit at least the nuclear family unit and now so you're eliminating one of the best ways to produce saints and those four coupled with what we've already touched on inflation which is not only can have repercussions as like a moral bad, but it's obviously an economic bad when it's just like rampant inflation, which we're experiencing right now, but we can see why demanding the abstraction is just unnecessary inflation. So now we're at five and then I would say six is like, we can go back to Aquinas or JP2 or people uh, well before him talking about how money's a barren asset. And people are like, well, hold on, Mark, Money's not a barren asset anymore, right? It's well, what's changed. a barren asset? So a barren asset would be like bread or wine. Once you consume it, it's gone. You know, it can't be reused. A non-barren asset, um, I was basing on the term, but uh, non-barren asset like a hammer. Like you're going to use a hammer to build one house. You're going to use a hammer to build another house. You can, you can keep using it and eventually it'll break, but it's not a barren asset. You can use it more than once to produce something. 
money was a barren asset at the time of St. Thomas Aquinas, right? When he was writing that, you know, uh, investing, uh, like about usury and stuff like that. And people are like, oh, that doesn't apply anymore because it's not a barren asset anymore. We can, we can invest it into the stock market. We can do other things too. You know, we can, you know, uh, invest into multiple businesses and that kind of thing. And the point I like to make to people when they think about it that way, which hopefully I've convinced them already, but if we're going down this, <laughs> this part, um, is a barren asset when it, when it transferred, when money transferred in nature, when it became, went from a barren asset to, um, something that can be reusable just because it changed in nature. Why is that good? Because a lot of things change in nature over the time of our increasingly uh, modern society and our postmodern or whatever. And, you know, our secularization of society, like why would a change in nature be a good thing? Why is that something we should blindly support, blindly endorse? Because I think Aquinas, whether he was um, in the time he was or if he was transferred to this time, I think he would still think like in the way that. I was thinking, I hope you wouldn't, um, that you're still using this thing that probably should be, ought to be a barren asset. And you're using it to do all of these things where like, yeah, people might have more iPhones or people might have uh, uh, better technology or whatever it is. But you're also producing all of those things of like the global economy, the abstract dominant economics, all those things I talked about previously, because you're using something in a way that it probably should not be used. Okay, so you're saying money went from being a barren asset, so kind of like you have $10, you can go buy $10 worth of food. You can't put that money anywhere. You can't bury it in a hole in the ground, come back and have $11. Yeah. Whereas like, say, now, you, say you grow crops, you put 10 seeds in the ground, you grow some corn, you get 11 seeds back. Mm-hmm. Not a barren asset. Yep. But now people look at money as you put money in your bank account, Maybe not now much these days, these days with the interest rates, but like you put in a savings account, you get some interest back. Not a barren asset. Mm-hmm. And you're saying people just kind of went with that. Yeah, we just went with it. Because, I mean, and understandably so. Like it created more money and put more money in our pockets at the time being. But we didn't realize that the, the true – uh, macro effect of it limiting our purchasing power, of it producing the vices, of it producing that global society, of it producing the abstract dominant economics. I mean, like, what was it? Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a Bureau of Labor Statistics or something like that, or economic um, statistics, and it uh, said that like 70 to 75% of like the economic growth was in the abstract, not in the tangible. Like it wasn't like we were producing the the real goods or anything. It was that we were all of it was being done on that secondary market or so does, something akin to it. Does that mean like I caught a fish and it was ten inches and then next year I catch a fish that's eleven, but then I decide I want to change the numbers on my ruler and so now it's fourteen, even though it's the same size? Uh, no, I don't think that analogy quite works. It's it's more going back to that inflation piece that we were talking about where like, the Federal Reserve is monitoring like supply and demand and is saying like, oh, like go back to the 50s where like retail investing wasn't really mainstreamed or anything like that. And it's like, oh, demand uh, in the economy went up by X percentage. So we need to print X percentage more money. And the demand in the 50s or whatever was for houses. It was for, you know, clothes. It was for food. It was for whatever was going on back then. And now, you know, we have the the Fed Reserve, like, monitoring. It's like, oh, demand is going up, like, X amount of 
percentage, but now they're not, they're not factoring in that, or at least not to the degree they should be. They're not factoring in that like, oh, a lot of that demand was in abstract. It wasn't in, it wasn't in something that was actual necessity for human flourishing. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong. We have, we transitioned from however long ago, everything valuable was a tangible, real thing, more or less, whether that even something like knowledge, like Mm -hmm. a book had knowledge, like including stuff like that. We're now in an era where we have invented these abstract concepts like stocks, ETFs, et cetera, and we gave them value and we measure that value as the same kind of value as tangible, you know, houses, cars, food. Yes. Resources. And because we combine those two bins together, a lot of the growth we're seeing is not in real things, like a real product, real progress materially, but just sort of we've decided our made up stuff is bigger. Correct. And you don't like that. You got no. me. You got me thinking about how this idea translates to other things in the market, um, just the general market, be it probably primary when it comes to real estate by your definition. Um, but I, I bet there's a secondary market going on with real estate as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how does that apply to somebody who's looking to build wealth, like truly have, you know, a safety net or... Um, trying to build up an inheritance for future generations. Um, and for me personally, I, I do dabble in real estate. Um, so do these principles apply now to something that is tangible in, in real estate? How has that been messed up in a way since our currency is now unlimited and it's fiat currency and all that? It's not, it's not, it seems like since that happened, this can be applied to any market. Yeah, it could be applied to any market that, like, I mean, Xavier brought it up earlier in the conversation where it was, like, you know, the 2008 crisis when they just kind of packaged things together. And, you know, we were uh, basically those, like, subprime mortgages were being treated as, like, a stock market. But there's also, I mean, if you really want to flush out my my reasoning, and I go into it in the book that hopefully will be published soon, um, is you can have a slumlord, Right. It's essentially doing the same thing. Like they've put the money out and yeah, they've purchased a building, right? And purchasing a home, purchasing a building absolutely takes more work, even if you are a slumlord, than purchasing a stock. Like you just, you got to so sign check, the papers. Check and you that gotta... box of your definition from earlier. Like they're doing work. Yeah, yeah. There is a good or service involved. But if we're, we're being idealistic about it and how we should operate, like, you know, you don't want to be a slumlord. <laughs> you want to be able to maintain the property and work on the property and put the sweat and labor into it. And, you know, cause you, you, there could be the argument made that like, Oh, I bought a house, you know, um, I bought a house and I really wanted to like renovate the kitchen, flip it and sell it and, you know, put the work in and like, you know, reap those rewards, which is perfectly justified and everything. And, but I never got around to it. I, I just never like went to the house. I, and it was like it just became a burden on me and so three years later i didn't do anything to it i want to sell it and someone would be like according to my um my thought process on the stock market if they were trying to apply it they'd be like well it'd be wrong to like sell that for a profit just because the market went up and i'm like 
Yeah, but you know, you got inflation. Like if you if you're selling it, if you bought it for two hundred thousand and now it's two hundred fifty thousand because the market went up. I mean, that's probably somewhat, if somewhat equivalent to the to the inflation rate or something. And also too, like just buying the home, like you've assumed so much more risk. Because if you're anyone out there as a homeowner, like, you know, like someone could get hurt on your property. You weren't like mowing the lawn and then you got like fined. You weren't attending to the pipes during the winter and they froze up. And now you, the house is uh, labeled as condemned. You can't sell it in the first place. Like there, there's no matter what, there's going to be work that you have to put into that. So it's just like categorically different. But to go back to Anthony, uh, when you're talking about real estate, I mean, real estate's a, a really big gamut of things going on. Like, are you packaging subprime mortgages and doing that kind of shady stuff that the government's doing? Or are you just like, you know, you got three rental properties and you're trying to take care of them and make sure they're livable for families? Like, uh, those are two totally different things. And like, you know, if you're um, really trying to help provide shelter, then like, obviously, that's, that's a great good. And you're not charging obscene amounts of rent or anything. What are what are some of the objection objections you hear from people? Because I can I can think of a few. Like um, someone might say, off. like when it comes to the abstract good of the stock market, they might say, well, you, well, maybe I'm not doing labor, but like my money is a store of labor over time, and so I'm taking my stored labor and putting it towards this thing, and then. Yeah, so we can touch on the stored labor piece. Um, so, you know, I said that uh, – we mean, Anthony, we were talking about it earlier before the podcast started. And I said that you could be a singer-songwriter and you could, uh, you know, work on producing some great song that everybody loves. And it's in, – in theory, it's morally just. It's not like some rap song that's degrading women or anything. You're, it's a morally just uh, song. And now you're uh, – getting benefit from it you're getting like residual income every time it plays on spotify i don't know how that works but like maybe you're getting some kind of residual income from it yeah like royalties. and and um so now like you have all this money coming in from this song and now it's like you haven't you put in the work at the initial point but now it's like residual and stuff and that, that's great that's fine like you still put in the work you put the blood sweat and tears you worked on your vocals whatever it was compose the music and now you have this money and it's stored labor, right? As Xavier said, like you have this capital uh, that's stored labor and you're like, all right, I want to make more money because I'm not making enough money to pay the bills or anything off of my, my song. And so I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? Well, no Christian in their right mind said, well, you should go produce pornography and that'd be a great way to make money because, you know, it's lucrative and everything or I should go sell drugs and that'd be a great way to make money. No, no Christian in their right mind is going to say, yeah, you should go do those things. And I would say, like, the reason that you shouldn't do those things is because they're a moral evil and they're not promoting the common good. And I would say the same thing for the stock market. I think, I think it, I don't think it is promoting the common good, and therefore you shouldn't use stored labor on it. So but it, it you can of, use stored labor on like what Anthony was saying of like maybe you're going to buy a rental investment. Gotcha. Property. So it kind of comes back to your early your definition. Yeah, like, like stored labor doesn't change so, the ability what you can do with it. Right. So whether it's like um, labor to produce a good or service for the common good, it could be labor right now today or stored labor. You'd still say stock market is not promoting the common good. Yes. Okay. Um, the, the, this... the real big objection, if I can mm -hmm. just like put it in sure. there, the real big objection that I get is, um, is that in aggregate, some people think not that they've done like calculations to or anything in aggregate, they think that the stock market has produced good. 
because it has brought um, poverty levels. It, it could be said that like stock market is one of the key factors that have brought poverty levels down. It is one of the key factors that have like given us so much technology because you know when Apple IPOs, they get a bunch of money and they can go and make you know better new iPhones and expand into new markets and everything. That's one of the the, the top of not that it's like probably the best objection, but it's the top objection I get and. My point to that is like you kind of got to refute everything that I said previously about the global economy and abstract dominant economics well, well, and inflation. Well, let's dig into but, that a little bit because there's probably a lot of people out there thinking, wait a second, Mark, there are good things the stock market does. So let's name those things and then decide, like talk about whether they are actually good things, if they are actually products we can give as a result of the stock market. Yeah. Something so like – People are probably like, well, I make money off the stock market. That's good for me and my family. I got to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like that is that's a very easy refutable one because it's the ends can't justify the means. It's a totalitarian ethic. Mm-hmm. That's not a Christian ethic because, like, I mean, drug cartels provide for lots of families. They also ruin lots of families, <laughs> and uh, so we can't participate in that. The um the real like tongue in cheek kind of one that I like to use is um I actually had this in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago and some people got a kick out of it I think some people might have been offended but America and the Western world at large it's kind of the first time in human history where we can be poor and fat it's kind of amazing it's kind of an amazing feat that we've achieved I think the stock market is one of the things that helped us achieve that because of the the super abundance of things um. We, it is if you go look through human history like if you were poor you weren't fat it, it just what those two things don't coincide but now they do like it, it's almost like uh in, in some parts of the country it's like synonymous because you know it's, it's it's cheaper to buy twinkies than it is to buy apples you know and it's cheaper to buy coke than it is to buy um you know uh like sometimes purified water if you go to certain places but so I say that and all to say, like, we have more things. We have more luxuries because of the market, because of this super abundance. Like when you use the the money to get more money and then you have, like, increased purchasing power overall, um, even though it may be more centrally located in the, the big conglomerate corporations, like, people do have more purchasing power. And so you have more luxuries. Like you might be able to eat. Go out to eat more than once a week. You might be able to uh, send your kid to the private school. You might be able to buy the car you've always wanted, add the addition to your house, all those things. And um, you might be able to retire early. But those are kind of selfish personal goals that we have that often don't promote the common good and they don't retroactively justify the ills that we've already mentioned about the market. Okay. So it will, maybe some of them aren't selfish. You know, some people aren't necessarily trying to like retire at 23 and enjoy. Yeah, Twinkies of course. Of course. I'm, like, just, I'm being a little facetious. But it's like, but. sure, the stock market can benefit you as an individual, but it's still a system where the general output is bad. So you yeah. don't want to be kind of involved in that. All right. So individual gain aside, you know, people making money off stocks for themselves and the good of their family or perhaps selfish reasons. I could see a lot of people saying, sure, there, there's some negatives, but overall, this system of stocks allows people who start companies to either, you know, cash out and make good on their earnings for making a good thing for the world or with through an IPO, 
get an influx of capital to then produce more goods and services. So it's like, that's a good thing the stock market does. What do you have to say to that? Why is more goods and services a good thing? For the common good. For the common good. So you're taking an idealistic perspective of like all the goods and services being produced by the stock market are for the common good. And if we, if I, you know, say, okay, yeah, maybe in a good world, perfect world, all the goods and services being produced by the stock market are for the common good. Um, you're still promoting things for growth sake because that's what the stock market is. Like you're, you're, the company is IPOing and now they're in the business of growth. They're not in the business of making iPhones. They're not in the business of making Teslas. They're not in the business of uh, delivering products or anything like that. They're in the business of growth. And the business of growth is uh, very morally vacuous because however they can grow is uh, going to be the way that they pursue. Hence the, you know, all the different ills that we know of, of like, you know, slave labor and mining in foreign lands and you know uh they're going to do the thing that this society wants them to do of like supporting the lgbtq legislation or supporting abortion legislation or you know whatever they do they're going to do for whatever they think is going to make them grow now that could be swinging on the good side because like if every christian says hey i'm not going to buy coke anymore and all however many millions of us there are in the United States and Coke's prices plummet and everything like that, Coke would probably come out tomorrow with a cross in the middle of the Coca and the Cola because it's for growth's sake. Um, but obviously that never really works that way. It kind of works in the opposite of going down the secular materialistic viewpoint and not the Christian. What are, what are some other objections you hear from people when you kind of state this? I actually want to go back to the the one objection of like just in uh, some people will say that it is it's a net positive. They'll they'll agree with me that it produces kind of the the, the ills and the evils that I, I stated previously, but they'll also say that you know like you said you know it's helping me provide for my family and blah blah blah. So it's like when they say, but I don't think that even if it does produce net positives or it does produce positives, I think along with the evil it produces, I don't think that's still something a Christian should really be endorsing. Like if it's causing evil here, but then good here, like it's probably not something we should really be pursuing as the body of Christ because it's, then you're getting dangerously close, if not already in that, that totalitarian ethic that I said earlier of like using the ends to justify the means. Mm -hmm. So what then are we to do? Like if, if the stock market's out, if we take this premise and go, I agree, can't good conscience participate in this corrupt money system of abstract made up things where it's producing all these ills, you say, what's the alternative? Because we got yeah, families, so, we got futures. Absolutely. Yeah, this is the real hard thing. And this is something that I always say to people, like different situations require different amounts of prudence and – um like it's just very situational individualistic because when I got out, I was, I was, I had my three very young children. I just bought in a house, but I also was not even in my thirties yet. Right. Just turned 30 and I had time on my side. I have degrees that I can get a job like I, and I had an impulsive nature <laughs> and all those things. Um, and I actually had spoken with a couple people like higher ups that I had worked with previously and they were like, they kind of agree, but they're in their mid fifties. They got kids in college. They've already committed themselves to so many different bills and everything. And like, do I think you should still work your way 
to detangling yourself from the stock market? Absolutely. But I understand that those circumstances are completely different. We're dealing with a culturally ingrained system that no one's really given two thoughts to, you know, from a moral perspective for a very long time. So I think we need to be very delicate with ourselves when we're thinking about getting out or detangling ourselves from this, this, uh, what I believe to be a societal ill. Um, yeah, I think that's, I lost my train of thought. What else Alt- you got? Alternatives. So it's like. Alternatives. Yes. Okay, you know, we're in this world, there's inflation, um, you know, wages are dropping across the board and it's like, okay, maybe I can like pay my bills now, put my kids through school for the next five or 10 years. But then. I think we need to th- really think about future generations. Like we're told to love our neighbor and if our whole we got to first love our kids because if we can't love our kids, we're definitely not going to love our neighbor. And in the future generations, like if we continue down this path of engaging in this abstract speculation, we're going to put them in an even worse position. What we need to do is uh, change our mindset when it comes to investing. Um, one and first most there's a couple caveats like don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Like you don't need your iPhone 15. You don't need, you know, the brand new 2023 car, 2024 car. You don't need those things. You know, your kids can share a bedroom and all that kind of stuff. And also the big one here is um, retirement is retirement for an able-bodied person is not something a Christian should be really pursuing. And I think this really hits home on a lot of people. Like I get a lot of, I get a lot of like, pauses, gas, like, you know, people step back or anything when they, when they hear me say this, but it's like when we, the idea of retirement is at the age of arbitrary age of 62 or 64 or whatever it is, you're, if you're still able-bodied, if you're still able to perform work that is promoting the common good, like providing, producing those goods or services, and you're just like, no, I'm going to go play golf. That I don't think is loving thy neighbor. And that's one of the main reasons the stock market exists is so that you can retire early. So I'll, I'll get into the alternatives in a section in a second, but I just wanted to caveat it with: we need to stop thinking about, um, you know, early retirement or even like putting the kids through college or anything like that. Like these kind of luxuries, because like we shouldn't be pursuing luxuries at the risk of promoting a moral and economic evil in the world. Now, with that being said, and I know that's like really harsh to comprehend. I I want people to be, I I can be very harsh when I talk, but like, I want people to be very delicate with themselves because again, I'm kind of, there's only a couple of people I know of that actually talk about this subject. And most of the people I talk about with them, when I converse with them, they end up in the camp of reluctant agreement (laughs) where it's like, I wish you never told me about this. And I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, I was definitely, I thought that way about uh, Jacob when he first told me, because I was like, ah, I don't, I wish I never listened to that podcast. I shouldn't have clicked play. Um, But if we get out of that frame, that mindset of retiring early and uh, keeping up with the Joneses and that kind of thing, um, we realize, I'll say this, like (laughs) there's people living in today's world in like New York city and everything where there's like surveys being done, they're making like $250,000 a year. And they're saying they live paycheck to paycheck and they're not comfortable yet. It's just a complete disconnect. Cause you're constantly in this world of, of, of global economics where you're just, 
you know, it's a, it's a spiraling, it's a snowballing effect where we don't realize what it actually takes to, to live that simplistic life that would lead to, to sainthood. And now when I now I'll get into like the alternatives of. Bef- before we do, let's, let's stick on this retirement thing. Um, I have two thoughts. The first one is, you know, let's put out the outlier, whether it's 30% or 1% of people who make an obscene amount of money and live paycheck to paycheck because of their access. But like, say there's the, um, like a job where you really do have to kind of stop working. Like, um, the craftsmen, you know, electricians, plumbers, like these guys put in their blood, sweat and tears for 30 plus years, 40 plus years. And then, you know, their knees are bad. They've really like served the world. Like they truly did a good thing for the world. Absolutely. And they come to the end of it. They can't really work anymore. I mean, they could like kill themselves figuratively and Mm -hmm. struggle through it, but not really. And they'll probably get like pushed out by younger people. If they don't have, say, like a 401k, how are they getting by? Yeah, this is why in the the current generation, like our current, um, you know, the people retiring and the baby boomers and stuff like that, like the ship may have just sailed for them. I think they need to be in prayer with the Lord about like what to do with their stock market holdings and all that kind of stuff. But like you got to be delicate because if the first time you're ever hearing about this and the first time you're ever giving willful thought to it is when you're 16 and you're about to retire in a year or something like that and your knees are shot, like be delicate with yourself. Like it's okay. It's, it's, you know, we're constantly learning and growing and hopefully growing in virtue as, as uh, the body of Christ and, you know, learning more and more about this changing world and how he would want us to interact in it. Um, with that said, one of my uh, my top alternative, and again, these aren't one-to-one alternatives for the stock market because if I told you just go buy gold or just go buy Bitcoin and sit on it and then sell it at a later date for a profit, I'm essentially saying to do the same thing that you're doing in the stock market. So my very first alternative, they're, they're really mindset changes. And um, so I'm using the word alternative very loosely, but the first alternative is raising a Christian family. Because when I talked about earlier the ills of a family decay, we have kids like I'm, I'm one of them. I'm a hypocrite by saying it, but like I moved across the country away from my parents. And that's something that this change in money from a barren asset to what it is now, that's facilitated that. And we're no longer like we don't longer feel a responsibility to take care of the people in our in our family. Like we're like, oh, put them in the nursing home, put them in the assisted living, get a get a hospice nurse or get, get whoever. Like it's not not our responsibility anymore. But like, no, the fourth commandment is honor thy father and mother. And if they're they're getting older, if you, it's honoring your family. If you got an uncle and didn't have kids, and like he's his knees are shot and he can't do anything, thing like that's our responsibility as the body of Christ to to love thy neighbor. Because again, if we can't even love our own family and accept, you know. I, I, I don't have room for my, my grandmother to sit at the dinner table because, you know, my grandfather has passed away and she doesn't have any money or anything like that. Then like, and I just want to push her off into the nursing home. I, I don't think anyone's going to argue that's the Christian thing to do. Now it may cause headaches and now your wife's got to live with your mother or mother-in-law and that's a, a whole issue and everything like that. But like, is we're going we're gonna to suffer a little bit and that, that that's okay. Like suffering is where joy comes from. That's the only way we can produce joy really. So the first real alternative is to focus on raising the Christian family. Because again, I go back to the the promoting the common good. That is, um, you know, producing as many saints through just means. And the best way to produce saint 
is through an intact nuclear family. We know this. And um, if we dismiss this thing that is creating global economies and abstract dominant economics that are sending our kids off to across the country or across the world or whatever like that, and we're keeping the family more close-knit because the best way to build you know, to produce those saints is that close-knit family, that close-knit community. And we just don't have that anymore because of the globalized economy. So you may be in that position, the 62-year-old electrician that can't get down on his knees or plumber that can't get down on his knees anymore. And you're, you know, you're relying on the 401k, like be very delicate with yourself. I'm not saying that you got to divest and give it all away or anything like that. Uh, but if you're listening to this and you're in that situation, like share this podcast with, with your kids and your grandkids and everything, because they can make the change. Like it can be a generational change, but we need to, um, as a collective body of Christ, really, really endorse it. And that's, so I always say my first alternative is building that Christian family. And my next two alternatives that I talk about, again, not one-to-one -one alternatives, the next two I talk about are uh, in line with that. And that's building Christian community and building Christian business. Well, to that point, uh, this is, uh, my mind was opened up to this concept very recently, actually, because um, my grandparents are getting older and I talked to my uncle about this. Uh, what are we going to do with Abby and Papa? You know, like... Um, how are we going to take care of them as they age? And he said that he told them that he's never going to put them in a nursing home. He believes it's his duty as the son bless to just have them live with him or at least nearby. Um, because in, in his reasoning was they took care of me when I was unable to take care of myself as a kid, you know, so circle of life comes around Absolutely. And, and why, why can't it be reciprocated? So Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. I, I totally buy into that. And I agree. Yeah. And I think that that kind of is probably nails to a chalkboard to modern audiences, but well, like, I'm remembering what you said way at the beginning when you're like this stock market thing is barely 50 years old and kind of what we think of it's really like the nineties mm -hmm. and somewhere along the way it was like, Oh, my grandparents have their 401k. They can take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. But and you go back 100 years and then the 10,000 years prior to that, all of human history was different. Yep. And now it's not, it's not just waving a wand and saying we should live in caves and stuff, but like. No. But if you were pointing out. It does out, solve a problem though. Pointing out the yeah. novelty of this system is important because it feels like. This is kind of how it's always been, especially for the younger generation. I'm 20, 25. You know, people my age is like, oh, yeah, you invest, 401k, stock market, you know, retire, blah, blah, blah. But it's like my grandparents were like, no, we take care of mom and dad. And mm -hmm. even the idea of retirement, we were talking about this a little before we started the podcast. Like, I can't point to my sources, but I'm sure you can find it with a quick Wikipedia thing, like kind of modern retirement to my knowledge, started in Germany when they had too many older people in the workforce and there weren't open slots for young people. So they're like, well, why don't you just not work anymore? And then they gave them some money so that young people could have jobs. It's sort of this like contrived modern thing mm -hmm. in the last couple hundred years. And I'm, I'm kind of in the boat of like, I feel myself intellectually going, this all makes sense. But then I'm like, I don't want to. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, well, what you just brought up about the Germany thing is really, really important because 
you know, we, we, we know that if we talk to our grandparents, you know, all of us are, you know, high mid twenties to low thirties. Like we talk to our grandparents, like they're going to talk about their pension plans, you know, and the 401k came in in that, that late seventies and they started replacing the pension plans. And this leads me to my second alternative because the pension plans were really a, a relationship between the employer and the employee of being like the employer telling the employee, Hey, you're going to give us your best years and we're going to take care of you when you can't work anymore. And that creates community that creates community and building Christian community is my second alternative. Like the second alternative to this is because we need to raise that Christian culture. And if we, it's great, we raise a Christian family, but we need to be loving our neighbor, not just our kids and not just our grandparents and letting that spill over. And this is one of the reasons why I forget his name. I should have looked it up for the podcast, but the guy who invented the 401k said it was an atrocity, you know, because he realized that he replaced this pension plan thing that was really community building and replaced it with something that was just going to let, he probably didn't know it at the time, but like let some conglomerate insert BlackRock Vanguard or whatever, just grow to an exponential form. And that goes back to another thing of like, remember when you're, letting these companies grow exponentially greater than what your wealth is growing, even if you're doing well in the market, like they're snake oil salesmen. They're going to come in, think of Bill Gates, for example, he's going to come in and he's going to be like, Hey, buy this Microsoft thing. It's going to solve all your financial problems. And everyone's like, Oh yeah, I'll buy the Microsoft, buy the Microsoft. When he gets enough money, what did he do? Like, and the same thing BlackRock does when they get enough money, they liquidate everything and they buy something that's actually useful land, farmland biggest you know owners of land right now and far, farmland is, is bill gates so he it was it was a it was a bait and switch like let me sell you this abstraction that's actually kind of useless i'm going to get rich off of it exponentially greater than you're going to get rich off of it and now i'm going to buy up the useful thing yeah that reminds me actually of um all this crypto stuff going on like um some people might have heard of the sam altman and ftx loosely or maybe you're into it but it's like Ultimately, it was just a big scam. Make up some fake crypto money thing, get a bunch of people to buy in, cash out and get rich. Mm -hmm. But it's like, is that really that different than the stock market, except that people believe in the stock market? Yeah, well, that, that's all it is, is belief, right? It's kind of like a faith in a system because it's so easily manipulated. We saw this in like, you know, extreme examples, but really their examples just brought to their logical end in AMC and GameStop and, you know, kind of the meme stock and everything. And it was Sam Bankman fried That's the FTX guy, Sam Altman. Oh, yeah, the Sam open Altman. AI guy. Yeah. Sorry, um, Sam Altman. <laughs> like Sam Altman a lot better than I like Sam Bankman fried <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, so like you have this... Um, uh, you do. It, it's kind of the same thing. It's just that when does faith stop for certain people? And because it is such an easily manipulated system I guess by my, the bigger my players. My point in bringing that up is that I think a lot of people have a healthy skepticism of crypto. Wherever it ends up, maybe it'll be the money of the future. But like right now, it's kind of a wild west where it's like, oh, I don't know if I trust that crypto stuff. They might be trying to scam me. But I don't think a lot of people think of the stock market that way. But maybe it is. Like that seems to be what you're saying. Is like, didn't you say earlier before we were recording, like 70% of, you know, regular people, retail investors have lost out in the stock market? Oh, yeah. Most most retail investors lose. So it's like we're told this story, you know, 401k. The only way they um, they win is if they're on the, um if they're, they're profiting off of like the 401ks, which are managed by like the Black Rocks and everything. And that's just because the Black Rock has the incentive to manipulate the market to make sure those 401ks do well because Black Rock's basically like, give me your money pay me money to manage your money and then I'll give you more money and I'll 
increase my own purchasing power. So really the the going the institutional route is the only way the retail investor wins. The everyday retail investor doing their day trading and everything like that, they're going to lose majority of the time. Yeah. So I think my point though is like there's cheaters in this game. Oh, yes. We've been told, at least people in my generation, you know, if you watch YouTube, it's like um, long-term, financially responsible, blah, 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 stable, etc. But in reality, it's these big conglomerates. And unless you, you know, ride the coattails of the evil empire, you're going to lose out. So not only is, if you're correct, the stock market wrong for all of these reasons, but practically speaking... It might not even work for your goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And I mean, think about so many people, even the baby boomers are retiring now. Like if you interview, we take a, you know, a, 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 a survey of them, like how many of them are going to say that like, oh yeah, my 401k is going to be enough to get me through my like nineties. It's very few are going to be like, yeah, I feel very comfortable about that. This <laughs> is very few are going to feel comfortable about that. And then, and this kind of leads me into like the, that third alternative. So I talked about, you know, um, family. I've talked about uh, community, Christian building Christian family, building Christian community. Um, third one is uh, is starting and running Christian business. And I don't mean that like you don't – you got to have a crucifix. like, you know, right when they walk in and they <laughs> you got to say to our father before you order a pizza from me or anything. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like you're – incorporating the Christian principle where you're not dollar chasing. You're doing, you're starting the business because you see a need and you see a need in your community and you're going to produce the thing that is going to give you a way to make money for your family. But you're also going to um, not screw over your employees by char- by doing really crappy wages. You're not going to cut corners in your ingredients You're because all of those things are eventually going to hurt you in the long run, either spiritually or economically when you, um, cause you're, you don't want to facilitate this corrupt finance industry as a whole. I know we've been talking about the stock market, but I, and I don't want to get in the weeds of the whole of it as a whole. I picked the stock market cause it's a low hanging fruit, uh, that's easier to detangle yourself from, but you want to run a Christian business with Christian virtues, not chasing dollars, but chasing sainthood and the glory of God. And I know that seems very idealistic pie in the sky type thing, but it's what we're called to do. And I think it would have massively positive benefits on society, not just spiritually, but economically as well. We, you, you would see your purchasing power really increase if people weren't chasing the dollar. Um, naturally so. And then, uh, I don't know if you want to, I have like two more alternatives, but they're really not in the same vein as the first three. The, the, the second two are, um, metallics like natural resources and, uh, the cryptocurrency, but I have a caveat for both of them. So like, I'm okay. If you want to put your money in gold, I'm okay. If you want to put your money in Bitcoin, here's the thing. You actually have to promote them as a currency replacement. Because that's the real end goal of what they should be. Because if you're treating, if you're just buying gold and then letting it sit in your basement or something or sit in like, you know, some, um, you know, IRA or something like that, and you're, or you're just buying cryptocurrency and treating it like a, um, like a tech stock, like you're doing the same thing. That was a problem with the stock market. You're, you're using money to get more money and you're not producing any labor. You're not doing any labor to produce the good or service. Like you're essentially doing the same thing. It's going to be a problem. And, um, but what we need to do is 
if you're going to do that, because the big problem with cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is that it's not treated as a currency. This is why it's so volatile and why it now it is kind of like going in the ebbs and flows of a traditional tech stock is because it's not being used what it was initially meant to be used for as an actual currency. It's being used as just a, a essentially another derivative, another asset to invest in. And then the so the, those kind of get lumped into one the metallics natural resources the the cryptocurrencies and then the fifth one which I think is really important but obviously very hard to do is um, you know owning land and property because most people will always be like well you're not letting me make money off the stock market how am I ever going to make enough money to purchase land or whatever and I'm like this is when the community and the family come into play because. There's certain uh, cultures out there, you know. I think it's like Romanian culture and stuff like that. That they 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 pull their resources, and they're extremely successful financially, because the brother, the uncle, the father, and the cousin all get together and they buy this place. And now you may sound like that sounds like an absolute headache, but what you're really telling me is you'd rather deal with Wells Fargo than you would with your family, and that's not something that I think is going to produce the sainthood. But like if we can pull our resources together, buy the investment property and everything, like you're going to uh, save future generations purchasing power and you're going to eliminate the need for these stock market sponsored 401ks and everything. By there, doing yeah, it definitely sounds like there's subsidiarity at play. Like when you put it that way, it's like, would you rather trust giant corporate conglomerate profit hungry company or your brother? Your cousin, your uncle. It's like, yeah, they might be annoying, but who actually cares? Who actually cares about you? So action steps. I know you've you've posed some alternatives and those are fantastic, but some of those will only take hold over the long term. Yeah. Let's say let's say whoever the listener is is or wholeheartedly <laughs> convinced. Yeah. What must they do? And let me just um some stuff that I thought um, off the top of my head. If I if I bought in and I want to go sell my game stock, GameStop stock, mm-hmm. I believe that I would turn a profit. Let's say um, I don't know. I don't even remember how much I put in there, but let's say I make thousand dollars profit off of it. What should I do with that thousand dollars residual? Uh, should I Put it to a good cause. Should I wait until it goes down? Should I just ignore it? No, I would say if you have the ability to get out like right now and you don't have – it's not going to like – because the first thing I say is pray. Like You got to discern between mm-hmm. you and, and Christ of like what and the Holy Spirit of what it is that you should be doing because every situation is completely unique. Like I said, me, I had kids in a house and everything like that, but I was also very impulsive and I had the ability – like I knew I could always go apply for jobs. The, that When I was talking about like that church offering, that was just – a, a godsend because I didn't want to go work back in like healthcare or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But that's what I was thinking I was going to have to do. And uh, he, you know, gave me um, that providence of where I was supposed to be. But like the first thing you should do is pray. Secondly is um, what you should do with it. Like I'm not in that position to tell you what you should do with it. It's I, between you and the Lord of like, do I want to give it to charity? Do I want to make a down payment on a house? Do I want to buy the engagement ring for my fiance? Like, I don't know. It's, it's, but I would say just, I would say if you can get out, get out and then use it for good purposes. The greater good. I like that. You know, I bet you, if, if you're listening, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Cause I'm probably in maybe the same boat you are, which is, 
annoyed. Um, <laughs> Apologies. And, and I, I, I helped Mark out earlier, like a year ago or so. He uh, sent a copy of his manuscript. I got wrapped into it somehow. And I went through all the same thoughts and then... Your dad volunteers you for a lot. Yeah, yeah. Voluntells you. That's the job. <laughs> but, um, and I was like, there's definitely something here. I don't trust these big evil corporations, blah, blah, blah. There's something about not working for money that's sketchy. And then I kind of let time go by and I talked to a few people and I'm like, oh no, this, that, the other thing. And then I kind of forgot about it. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll put this on the back burner. But every time I look into this or talk to you, I feel like this annoying nag. I'm like, I know you're onto something. And I'm, I've been philosophically trained through, through my education so I can like point out little ticky tacky technical errors in the perhaps like the formulaic logic of how you mm. present it. But that's not the point. And I'm just kind of annoyed because the world sucks. <laughs> And I don't mean to be crude with the language on that, but it's just like I – it's harder to live a virtuous life. We all kind of know that. But for whatever reason, we take this financial thing and put it over here in the corner and say, this is what everybody's always done, even though that's not really true. Mm. And this is the responsible thing. And I just can't help but like feel it. And, and, you know, I'm going to have to go and think and pray about this. And you listening, you probably should go and think and pray about this. Like, you can reject it at the end of the day. If that's your conscience and prudence, go for it. But, like, there's something here. And that's what bothers me. Is because the, it's like the status quo is not good. I would agree. There seems to be more angels of light today. Just, and I'm, I'm over here not, it's not nagging at me because... I never really got into it other than that GameStop. And I don't think I'm fully culpable for that either because <laughs> we, we have a buddy who uh, is hyping it up and very convincing ultimately it would seem. But um, it's it would be very easy for me to just get out of that. In fact, I don't even think I made a profit on it, so it's probably good that I get out of, out of it as soon as possible. The retail investor usually loses. <laughs> yeah. So that's my thought on it a little bit. Less deep than yours, but I resonate with what you're saying. It is frustrating. I was very frustrated. Like yeah. when I first kind of came to this, like I said, I'm, I'm talking to my wife while she's about to give birth to a fourth child. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, yeah, I was completely obsessed with it because I didn't want it to be true. I God kept asking me. I was someone, and this is probably why, like I'm someone who from a very young age was very obsessed with money. I, I wanted to make a lot of money. I mean, that was. It's a fun game. It, and I loved it. And I was actually somewhat, I was one of the retail investors that actually was kind of decent at it. <laughs> so I was like, I liked, um, I, I always wanted to make money. It was, it was just, it was a competition to me. I loved competition in every way, shape and form. And every time that I thought I was following God's will, he kept being, he kept taking away a revenue resource for me. And I was like, really? Come on again. <laughs> but I mean, he put me in, I, I can't be more grateful for the position that I'm in. And it, it really like that, not keeping up with the Joneses type thing of like, wow, like I don't actually need that. And, you know, the, the, the more money, more problems, man. <laughs> like the more money, more problems. And like now living the more a lot more simplistic life with a somewhat small house and a lot of screaming children and big dogs and everything is, is, is beautiful. 
and I couldn't be more grateful. Your four children are your investment. They are. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The fact that you have four, I mean, there's an argument for you to have five because oh, yeah. when it's time for hey, you to be taken merrier. care of, right? They divide that that work four ways. Yeah. The more the merrier. Yeah. God willing. Please, Lord. Yeah. Just pray to not be one of those grumpy old people. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if you're old and have had challenges. We understand. Probably got um, that. Something I've been thinking about. <laughs> As you talk, I've thought about this before, but as the Amish and per, you know, if, if you're of the humorous bent, the Amish are the endless, butt of the endless joke, like, oh, I saw one of them using a power tool. Ooh, caught the hypocrite. <laughs> and it's like, sure, fine. But if you really think about it, what is it to be Amish or Mennonite or like, what is that way of life? That way of life to me appears to be a community where they carefully gauge the effect of technology and the effects of technology so we could include something abstract like the stock market. They look at these things and before they let them into their society say, do we think this is good for us? And if they don't, they keep it out. So it's like modern medicine. Yeah, you'll see Amish people at the hospital because they don't want to die. That's a pretty easy one. And with the power tools, like maybe they use them when they go like put roofs on people's houses and stuff because it's just a better way. And then like whether or not you're using a hand screwdriver or a Ryobi doesn't really matter at the end of the day. But when they're at home in their community, they're like, no, we won't want to watch TV four hours a day. Mm. We don't want to be sucked into this social media thing. And like a lot of people laugh at them, but it's like, do you enjoy sitting at 2 a.m. after you've scrolled Instagram again for like the fifth time this month till two in the morning? There's something there with the Amish. Yeah. And I think it's the same kind of thing you're getting at, which is like we've just kind of blindly accepted the the march of so-called progress mm. without really noticing the consequences. And it's like the frog in the frying pan kind of thing or not, the frog yeah. in the boiling water. Yeah, yeah. Not the frog in the frying pan. I'm mixing my analogies. Forgive me. It's it's uh we're going on two hours here. What analogy is a frying pan in it? Out of the fire into the frying pan. Uh, yeah. I've made my cake, I'll sleep in it. <laughs> two. Um But it's like these changes happen, we feel like it's always been this way. It's just kind of the world around us. But they're just like the Amish, we can choose maybe not literally, you know, we don't have to live the rural agrarian life, but there's a way in the Christian life where we reject the parts of the secular society that are bad for us. And we're used to that with like moral life and the things we do and don't do, abortion, contraception, etc. But it's like this financial realm for whatever reason has been this thing where it's just, we don't question it. It's just what you do. It's responsible. Yeah. If I can make just one point in there, um, maybe I've been criticized for being a little too, uh, or having too much zeal <laughs> or a little overzealous is um, when you have this, when, you, when you're doing this and you're like, oh, I'm going to get out of the stock market and your fear is that you won't be able to be provided for in your older age or you won't have enough money to, to eat or whatever. Remember, we live in a country where it's possible to be poor and fat and also if you're doing the thing that you're supposed to do, like if this is on your conscience, if you know, you've prayed about it, you're trying to be prudent about it. And Christ is like, yeah, that 
a crazy guy and Mark Lozano was onto something and I'm going to follow through with it. Like if you're truly doing it for the betterment of the kingdom, for the sainthood of your fellow man, um, trust in our Lord to provide the daily bread. I mean, we pray that we're supposed to pray it every day. Like trust in the Lord to provide the daily bread because if you're doing what you're supposed to, I don't think he will abandon you. And not saying that like what I'm saying is, I do believe what I'm saying is true, but I'm saying that like, um, even if I'm not like you're doing the thing that you think is correct. If you truly without like your biases and everything in there, I do believe the Lord will provide for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. This might've been a little heady, everybody. And we, we got into some weeds here and there with the details of the financial, this and that's the world. But at the end of the day, that's what it's about. We're pursuing sainthood. We're trying to balance and juggle the complexities of this modern world. And I mean, it isn't 1300 peasant England where we just grow our wheat and get taxed too much by the government. Though one of those things still happens. <laughs> Any closing thoughts, guys? Let the peace of the Lord preside over you and come to him in prayer and thanksgiving for your wishes. Something to that effect was the one of the readings from last Sunday. Yeah, so Mark, you're writing a book. Is it's not out yet. But no. if you're listening to this sometime after October 10th, 2023, there's a chance it might be out if it's, you know, 6 months or years later. So, how could they find your book? In the future, if this happens to be sometime in the future, or how can they find out more about what you talk about now? So Christ Center Capital is the website. You can get there by the URL investforchrist.com, investforchrist.com. And uh, I give a free newsletter delivering world finance news from a Christian perspective there every week. Um, and yeah, hopefully after the book goes through a couple uh, philosophical edits, it'll be ready to go and uh, you'll be able to get the book there. Yeah. And um, Mark is doing his due diligence. He's going to Steubenville right after stopping by here at our headquarters in the uh, Northeast Ohio area. And some very smart people, definitely smarter than all three of us in this room and not worn out by two hours of talking constantly. So if, if it is the future and you're listening to the past, Go check it out. Find the book if it's out. And uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed, though you might be annoyed. Thanks, everybody. And uh, God bless. Have a good day. Disclaimer. The Mary Foundation and its representatives are not financial advisors, and nothing in this episode is to be construed as financial advice. Please consult a trusted financial and spiritual advisor before making any financial decisions. We strongly emphasize that we are not experts in this area. The Catholic Church has not condemned investment in the stock market, and Catholic teaching generally permits investment, interest, loans, and other such financial interactions like those discussed in this episode. The views expressed in this episode do not represent those of the Mary Foundation. It is rather a conversation exploring a fascinating idea with an interesting person. Due to the constraints of the medium, there are many critical facets of this topic, including objections, that could not be explored, though we did our best to cover anything that came to mind. We leave it to the listener to proceed in prudence according to their own judgment. 
We hope you were inspired by this podcast, and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know, family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, all we ask for is help covering our materials costs. So please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted, so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. And now, here's a short preview of our Rosary and Divine Mercy Chaplet, the most popular rosary according in the history of the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For an increase in the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.